This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Lots going on this week in Michigan politics as usual, but we're going to get started right away with our first guest, and we are fortunate to have with us Jason Sneed. He is executive director of the Honest Elections Project on the line with us. Welcome, Jason Sneed. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Jason's organization Honest Elections Project issued the following statement regarding Michigan's Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson agreeing to resolve a federal lawsuit that allowed Michigan's voter rolls to become inflated and inaccurate. Now, that was the statement they made on Thursday, and I'd just like you, Jason Sneed, to embellish on that a little bit. What's this all about? Well, this is about making sure that Michigan voters can rely on their election system. And the first rule of a fair and honest election is to have clean voter rolls. These are the records that public officials use not only to plan elections, but also to make sure that we know who is and who is not eligible and qualified to vote in your town, your community, in your state. And what we saw going back a year ago was data that indicated that despite a federal law requiring Secretary Benson to maintain clean and accurate roles, that these records were were not being properly maintained and that, in fact, there were inflated uh, voter registration roles in Michigan. And so we were very proud and happy to be working with uh, a Michigan voter and uh, a civic leader named Tony Dott uh, to, to work on this process. Unfortunately, it had to go to litigation because when the evidence was presented to her, Secretary Benson denied that there were any problems. And then after uh, about seven months of of litigation in federal court, we got a press statement from Secretary Benson acknowledging that, in fact, there was insufficient list maintenance. And now we see announcements that uh, uh, almost 200,000 outdated and inaccurate voter registrations are going to be removed from the rolls. So, We feel pretty confident that this would not have happened if it wasn't for this lawsuit, if it wasn't for Tony Dodd's tenacity, and if it wasn't for the fact that Secretary Benson failed uh, to get this uh, case thrown out of court, which is what she tried to do. So this is a big win for Michigan voters, especially after 2020, when what we need to be doing is, is doing anything we can to ensure the confidence and credibility in our election system. I noticed that uh, Secretary Benson says she is now going to cancel 177,000 voter registrations uh, admitted in a statement that these uh, particular voters, quote, lacked sufficient comprehensive efforts to maintain, uh, you know, their presence on the rolls. How did a, a number that big ever get to that point that you had to take this action last summer? Well, as as we feared, uh, Secretary Benson was not adequately cleaning up the, the voter registration record. That was the initial uh, concern that we had when we saw data from a number of counties in Michigan where the percentage of registered voters compared to the 
uh, or the number of registered voters, excuse me, compared to the number of, of citizen voting age um, uh, folks living in each county, according to the Census Bureau, uh, exceeded 90 or 100 percent voter registration. So, in other words, there were some jurisdictions in Michigan that claimed that they had more registered voters than living voters uh, in, in their communities. That was a, an obvious red flag. And what we feared was going on in Michigan was a, a lack of proper and sufficient list maintenance. Now, that was denied by Secretary Benson when we first uh, sent this letter to her uh, in February of 2020. That was repeatedly denied in public and in court throughout litigation. In fact, Secretary Benson tried to get this case thrown out and called it um, uh, a case based on you know, debunked claims and bad statistics, to, to use her own quote. But then uh, in January of this year, finally, we get this statement acknowledging that there are indeed 177,000 voter registrations that, uh, that need to be removed, and also a candid acknowledgement for the first time that Michigan was, in fact, not uh, executing a satisfactory list maintenance program. That's a huge admission, and it's also a, a marked about face from the prior year where she consistently said that there was nothing wrong with the voter rolls or her office's list maintenance program. Now, Jason Smeave, um, Jocelyn Benson revealed back in September, this is like five months ago, that she had mailed unsolicited ballot applications to every registered voter in Michigan and that at least 500,000 applications were undeliverable because of the voter rolls being inaccurate. I mean, what about the difference between 177,000 she says she's now going to purge from the rolls and the 500,000? What about those? Well, you're absolutely right to bring that up. That was an amazing example of, of Jocelyn Benson's own actions proving that her claims about the, the integrity of the list maintenance process were invalid. Because when she did make the decision to send a, an unsolicited ballot application to everyone on the voter registration list, we saw half a million of them at least go undeliverable. And we suspect that number is higher because there were lots of Michigan voters who reported receiving uh, ballot applications for people who were deceased, for people who used to live at their address but had long since moved away. So we think that that number could be as high as 800,000 um, uh, uh, based on some of the statements from folks in Michigan. So, so that was a, an alarming statistic. But there's certainly, I think, more work to be done on the list maintenance front. This is not a one-and-done type of a thing. The only solution to maintaining clean and accurate records is to have a routine, ongoing, proactive process because people are constantly moving. Ten percent of Americans move every year. On top of that, you have people who die. You have people convicted of, of, of felony offenses that disqualify them from voting. In other words, there is a constant churn in the voter registration process. And if you simply rest on your laurels and allow that churn to, uh, to go uh, unpoliced, then you are going to have old, outdated, and inaccurate records lingering and inflating your voter rolls. And that's a problem for a whole number of reasons. So I, I certainly hope that Secretary Benson will continue, as she said she will, with ongoing list maintenance that will certainly tackle that problem of 500,000 uh, inaccurate ballot applications first and then continue into the future. So she said she's going to purge 177,000 according to this agreement, but you think it could get upwards of, let's say, 500,000 or maybe even more. But who's going to enforce that? How is she going to be forced to purge even more than 177,000? 
Well, we're going to continue to watch how this process unfolds. Uh, there are, are, are statutory processes under both federal and Michigan law that Secretary Benson has to comply with to begin the process of cleaning up the rolls as it relates to that 500,000 batch of ineligible applications. We'll be watching closely, and I suspect that Tony will too. And if Secretary Benson continues to drag her feet in the future and goes back on her own statements here in public that this is going to be an ongoing thing, then future litigation may be necessary, and that's certainly not, I think, off the table. And, uh, and that's certainly something that we, uh, we would be more than happy to be, uh, to be supportive of in the future because, like I said, this is not something that anyone should be taking for granted. Voter rolls should always be accurately maintained, and that's something that is absolutely worth fighting for. At the end of the day, this is about ensuring that we have an election system that voters can be confident in and that voters will find credible. And I think that that begins at the very basic level with maintaining clean and accurate voter rolls. So, Jason Steed, you probably know that Secretary Benson's office insists that, in fact, they would have done this on their own uh, and that your movement last summer to file this lawsuit was really a press release masquerading as a lawsuit. They were going to do this anyway, but she said they were blocked by the federal law that stopped them from maintaining the rolls. I, I don't get that. How could the Federal Voting Rights Act stop them from maintaining the rolls? And is that correct? Well, there is a shot clock in the NVRA, but that's not really the issue here. The issue is the program that maintains clean and accurate rolls. In the original complaint, Tony said it was insufficient. Secretary Benson said otherwise, then reversed course after seven months of litigation and now is pledging for ongoing list maintenance. That's the real issue, and that's the real victory in this lawsuit. Well, big victory for Honest Elections Project, of which Jason Sneed is the executive director, uh, and we'll monitor this going forward, but I think a very interesting development that hasn't really gotten the prominence in the news media that it should here in Michigan. Thank you, Jason Sneed. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute with still more. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and we are very fortunate to have with us Matt Resch, who is president of Resch Strategies, an 11-year-old firm in Lansing, uh, public relations, advocacy, consultants. I'll let him describe it. Thank you, Matt Resch, for being our guest. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. It's always fun to talk to you. Well, so give us a little bit of your background. You spent a lot of important time in the legislature on staff, and then you started Resch Strategies. I did, actually. I, I, I moved to Michigan out of college from Indiana to take a job with Governor John Engler uh, in his uh, constituent service office and uh, started there uh, opening the mail and answering the phone and moved after that into his communications shop. And by the time he was out of office, um, I was the deputy press secretary for the governor and the lieutenant governor. And so when when Governor Engler left office, I moved over to the legislature and during that time uh, worked for both Speaker Rick Johnson and Speaker Craig DeRoche. Uh, I was the press secretary for both of those leaders and uh, was communications director as well. And then I started Rest Strategies a couple years after leaving the legislature. Okay, well, one development this week was this announcement by an outfit called Honest Elections Project, 
which said that it had achieved a settlement agreement with Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, um, which forces Michigan to clean its voter rolls of inflated and inaccurate names. Uh, what's your reading about all that? Well, you know, you know, Bill, you've been around a while. I think you know that when there's a, a battle of press releases, both sides can kind of claim to win. <laughs> and I think that's what that's what both sides have done in this case. I think that the uh, the project set out to uh, raise some really, uh, I, I guess I'll say, legitimate questions about Michigan's voter rolls. You know, the Secretary of State uh, claims that she had it on her to-do list to clean up those files all along and that this lawsuit had nothing to do with that. Um, but I think the fact of the matter is she's now doing it. Uh, the case is being uh, withdrawn or dismissed, and I think both sides can uh, go back and say, um, you know, she can say, the Secretary of State can say, look, I was going to do this all along, and, and we can all have confidence in our election rolls. And uh, the project can say, you know what, we forced her we forced her hand, and we can't say for sure if she ever would have done this without our lawsuit, so it's a win for us. And so I think, you know, it certainly isn't in Jocelyn Benson's best interest to have anything like this hanging over her head with all of the conspiracy theories and talk about, you know, dead voters and fixed elections and all of that. I think just clearing this stuff and, and whether it's legitimate or not, getting it off the table is just in, in her interest to make sure that people have confidence in our elections. Now, do you talk about issues like this in your podcast, Cold Oatmeal, which you've had up and running for a couple of years, or do you stay away from that? To be uh, perfectly honest, we try to talk about anything but politics on Cold Oatmeal. <laughs> we are, we, it, is, it is kind of our, uh, a little project we started as a team, uh, the Cold Oatmeal Podcast.com. It was kind of fun, us just kind of talking after staff meetings, and we decided that we'd start recording it because we were having so much fun talking about things other than work. And so for the, we've had, we're in the middle of our fourth season, and we just try to invite in, you know, interesting people. And some of, them are, some of them are political folks. We've had some lobbyists. We've talked to Lieutenant Governor Kelly. We've had a lot of Capitol reporters uh, come on over the years. But we also talked to completely other random people, like you know, an, an exterminator. Uh, we're gonna, this week's edition is you know, the, the MSU soccer coach. So it's, we, we, we like to have fun. We like to meet new people and try to bring kind of a different taste of conversation to the Lansing scene. Now back to issues again. This week, um, Amber McCann, who was a uh, spokesperson, press secretary for Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky, and before him uh, for Arlen Meekoff and Randy Richardville and Mike Bishop, when they were Senate Majority Leaders, she surprisingly left or says she's leaving, I guess, early next month to work for none other than Attorney General Dana Nessel, a very prominent statewide elected Democrat. Uh, people were kind of stunned and shocked about this. What do you think? Well, you know, Amber Amber's a, a great professional and has done a lot of really good work. And, you know, I, I had a similar job to what she had when I just on the House side for a number of years. I think, I think a couple of things. I think that people who don't follow politics closely or, or the legislature would be surprised to know, based on kind of the news coverage of the Capitol, that there are people in these jobs who don't live and breathe partisan politics. They're just, they're, they're doing good professional work. And in, <clears throat> in Amber's case, public relations and media, media relations work. She never struck me as a partisan firebrand in her job. And I don't think that either any of the leaders she worked for really asked her to go out and be that, that partisan bomb thrower. And so I think for her, she gets the chance to go work for, you know, a legend in public relations in Lansing and Kelly Rossman McKinney, 
um, and, and, and learn from her and, and, and support her. I think the surprise in this really is the fact that Dana Nessel is about as Democrat and as far left a politician, <laughs> uh, abrasive as you can probably possibly imagine. And I think Mike Shirky, certainly right now, is about as far right a politician as you can imagine. So the, the, the contrast between these two characters is really probably the most dramatic thing. It's much more, I think, dramatic that she would go from you know one far side to the other far side than it is really about you know, uh, you know Amber's personal politics or anything like that. Well, I will say that both Shirky and Dana Nessel have kind of fed into your narrative. They said, uh, look, uh, on Nessel's side, she says, honestly, uh, Amber McCann is going to be working on things that really don't have any necessarily partisan coloration uh, in my shop. She says, I don't even know what the party affiliation is of people in this area. Uh I, and I don't care. And for that matter, uh, Senator Shirky said, hey, I wish Amber McCann well. She did a great well, job for us. I mean, you so- know, Bill, I think one thing that crosses all partisan lines is that elected officials don't like the spotlight on anyone other than them. They like it on themselves. <laughs> and so when people are talking about a staff move, that's that's not that's not what people that's not what they want them talking about. They want them talking about themselves. And so I think that's an interesting, interesting take by both. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Dana Nessel, uh, she apparently agrees, believe it or not, with the Republican majority legislature and, for that matter, a lot of Democrats in the legislature that the governor's pocket veto of a bill last year that would have expunged first offense uh, drunk while into- driving while intoxicated uh, Charges should be dismissed. Uh, she signed all sorts of other things in criminal justice reform legislation, but she vetoed that one. Mm-hmm. And Dana Nessel basically says, I think the governor was wrong, and I'm going to talk to her about this. And I'm sure the legislature is going to try again. How do you read all this? Well, you know, that is an issue that has really, you know, it, it hasn't gotten a, a lot of media attention. But the criminal justice reform and the, the smart justice package that passed last year was one of the things that got wide bipartisan support. I mean, it was, you know, House Republicans working with Lieutenant Governor uh, Garland Gilchrist on, on bills and, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So, and I think even if I can remember back, I think Attorney General, uh, Attorney General Nessel and, and the House Speaker may have even done a news conference when these bills were introduced. So this was one of those things that had bipartisan support. Uh, it had groups like the Mackinac Center and um, the ACLU testifying together uh, with each and, and legislative committee. So I think the governor really did surprise everyone. I'd be interested to know if, if Garland Gilchrist even supported the governor's veto because he was <laughs> he led the task force that really called for these bills. So, yeah, I would be sure that this bill ends up back in her desk. All right. Well, listen, I, I was getting fixed into ask you a whole bunch more questions, but we're out of time. That's what always happens. But we'll get you back at some point. Thank you so much, Matt Resch president of Rest Strategies, for being our guest. Thanks, Bill. Take care. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have Louis Theros, he is uh, vice president, also legal counsel for MGN Grand Casino in Detroit, and I think also 
and MGM Grand in Northfield Park outside of Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. Louis Theros, thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me, Bill, and you got it right. Thanks so much. Okay, well, look, uh, you live in exciting times, that's for sure. Uh, Sports betting has become a great big new world out there, and I'm just stunned. I watch a Pistons game, and I swear between free throws, all of a sudden there are ads coming on the air for, for sports betting, place a bet. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, what do the brick-and-mortar casinos uh, experience down there in Detroit with the beginning of uh, online, or both online and walk-in sports betting at the casinos? How does that work? Well, Bill, we were fortunate uh, at the beginning, at the end of 2019, to pass a package of legislation um, that allowed the introduction of sports betting and online sports betting and online gaming in 2020. Uh, Governor Whitmer's team uh, helped us uh, get through the legislation originally sponsored by then-Representative Brant Iden, and uh, Curtis Hertel helped us get it across the finish line, and uh, Governor Whitmer was kind enough to sign it. So in March, uh, we were opening the indoor, the bricks and mortar uh, sports betting bet MGM lounge here at MGM Grand Detroit. We did it with a lot of fanfare. Uh, we had a lot of sports personalities here: Tommy Hitman Hearns, uh, Buddha Edwards from the Pistons, uh, and others. Dave Rosema, and it was packed. And then five days later, the casino shut down because of COVID. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was a really exciting time. We built this fantastic Bet MGM lounge here at uh, MGM Grand Detroit that's got, uh, I think it's 60 TVs, uh, all built on a TV wall with uh, tabletop uh, video poker games, etc. And uh, because of COVID, it only saw a good seven, eight-day run to full capacity. And since we opened in August for three months and then reopened at the end of December, we've obviously had limited capacity under the health uh, and human services orders, but Still a lot of energy in Michigan around sports betting and online gaming. Well, when do you think it's going to get back up to full speed again? Will it ever get back to the energy that you saw at the beginning when you opened last March? I, I absolutely think it does. There, there is a proven tie-in between online sports betting and bricks-and-mortar sports betting. Um, you know, on the BetMGM app, for instance, you are earning uh, comp points on our MLife loyalty program so the only way you can redeem a free steak or a free hotel night is to actually come to the bricks and mortar if you've earned it on your online app. And the one thing about Michigan, uh, Bill, that we found as we were looking through uh, the proposals and the legislation is I, I've always told people that we are fortunate that we are not only a state that is really passionate about its college teams that are located throughout the state, um, but also we're fortunate to have uh, one of the state cities that has all four major sports. And so we are a sports-crazed town, and I always knew that it would be big. So I think once occupancy levels continue to increase as the pandemic hopefully winds down, um, I think you will still see that energy. People like to be around people, and I think they're getting tired of the Zoom meetings, and uh, I think they want to have some more human interaction. So part of that is sports, and that's what sports is meant to be. Do you see any difference between the way MGM Grand is handling all this and your two casino competitors in Detroit, like Motor City Casino? How, how is that working? So the three of us uh, and uh, the tribal casinos were aligned in getting this legislation passed, or most of the tribal casinos were. And um, so we were all pushing in the same direction to get this passed. 
And all of us as a bricks and mortar have, um, you know, launched our in-property uh, sports lounges and, of course, online. Now, of course, I'd be remiss to say I think our BetMGM lounge is the best of the three, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're obviously competing with one another, and uh, we're all trying to do what's best, uh, you know, for our customers. Do you see any cannibalization of betting from other forms of gaming at MGM Grand? I mean, are people who were playing roulette or blackjack or something drifting over to the sports book and forgetting about betting there, or is this a kind of new kind of better? I would say the latter. Um, sports bettors uh, have lived in the shadows for a long time. Uh, we know that uh, there were bookies and, in fact, online uh, sports betting offshore. So part of this is getting to a customer that was underground and getting them, frankly, into a legal form of betting uh, through a process that's regulated by the state and which then, of course, provides state dollars. We also think that that better and sports betting is complementary to many of the table games we have. So sports bettors also enjoy blackjack or our poker room, and a lot of the poker players uh, very much enjoy sports betting. So we think it actually expands the, uh, the client base uh, for those involved in sports betting. Let's flash forward to the end of calendar year 2021, and it, starting there and looking backward to March of 2020 when you opened, even though there have been many interruptions in between and not operating at full capacity, how much do you think by the end of 2021 will have been bet on sports contests at MGM Grand in Detroit? Well, I will say this. I, I, I can't put a true dollar figure on it, but I know, you know for instance, Tennessee – uh, launched uh, at the end of 2020 as an online sports betting uh, uh, state. And uh, Michigan, in just uh, 11 days of operation in January, exceeded the entire month of bets in, in a Tennessee. So in one-third of the time, we actually exceeded what Tennessee did in an entire month. Um, we also were able to, as a state, do better than the state of New Jersey, which has a like uh, population to Michigan uh, for our, our, our betting and our Super Bowl betting. So um, I've always been a very strong believer that Michigan should be one of the leading sports betting states in the country. Again, um, I use this analogy, Bill, it's actually funny because my wife was you know, not a big sports fan. Um, we had two boys, and obviously very, they were very involved in sports. And so my wife started to realize, like, how is it on a Saturday you'd have 100,000 people in Ann Arbor for a game, 70,000 in East Lansing, the Tigers would have 40,000 at their stadium, and on Sunday the Lions might play, and it was 65,000. She's like, what, what's going on here? It's like, everybody, <laughs> are they cutting their lawn? You know, what's going on? And I'm like, this is what this state is about. And they love their sports team. So I, I think when you get to the end of 2021, I think you will see the state of Michigan uh, being one of the leaders in the country in terms of uh, revenue uh, coming from sports betting and online gaming. And uh, we hope that uh, and we know that BetMGM will be one of the uh, top tier providers in that world. Do you have any idea how much revenue the state treasury might get by the end of 2021 from sports betting in Michigan in all venues? Boy, that's a good question. Um, let me see here. I might have some. Uh, <laughs> our, our guesstimates, I think the state budget um, operators, let me see if I actually have a spreadsheet here somewhere. I think 
Um, I think on sports betting, um, they were probably talking in the neighborhood of something like uh, $20 plus million dollars um, going to the state in just the first year, and I think that number will grow every year. Really? Well, yeah. I mean, honestly, I talked to Brant Iden on air last week, and he thinks it's going to be way more than that. Well, yeah, I mean, this is just this is just on the sports betting tax at 8.4%. That's just sports betting. Online gaming um, could probably bring in uh, an additional 20 to $30 million. So you're talking about $50 million between the two. That's just the online portion and does not count what's coming in through the bricks and mortar. Wow. How about your wife? Has she started betting yet? No. Gosh, no. <laughs> <laughs> our, our boys played hockey forever, and I'm still working with her on offside sometimes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, she, she knows that I, I laid a few bets on the Super Bowl, and uh, she uh, she's, like, watching during a game and like, did that pan out for you? How'd that pan out for you? So I was able to say I, I uh, did better than even on Super Bowl Sunday. Hey, it's a short step from her question to you. She's going to be placing her own bet soon. I'll bet. I'll bet on uh, that. I'll take that bet. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Louis Theros, Vice President, Legal Counsel for MGM Grand Casino in Detroit, for being our guest. Great job. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Have a great day. Same to you. And we'll be back with our final guest in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with another fascinating guest, Elizabeth Batiste. She is a senior account executive with the Martin Waymeyer public relations firm in Lansing. Elizabeth Batiste, thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me, Bill. Well, now, Elizabeth, you have an interesting background. I think maybe you started out in Harbor Springs up north, and then you've got some kind of family connection to Flint, but you went out to Colorado at one point. You came back. You went to Michigan (laughs) State University. Tell us the Elizabeth Batiste story up to now. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was very fortunate to be born in Harbor Springs, so Lake Michigan will always have a very big piece of my heart. I grew up there until about fourth grade, and then I moved to Durango, Colorado, which was another beautiful kind of tourist town. So it was interesting to go from the lake to the mountains. Um, But, yeah, ended up at Michigan State, uh, go green, and uh, had a great time there. I was involved in a lot of volunteer activities with the MSU Sexual Assault Program, got to skydive out of a plane to raise money for it. Um, And I also met uh, then-Vice President Joe Biden. Um, He was recognizing one of the programs uh, at Michigan State as kind of an innovative um, program in the sexual assault and relationship violence sphere. And then uh, didn't you work with the state Senate Democratic Caucus for a while? Yes. Yeah, I was a a digital media strategist for the Senate Democrats. And, um, yeah, that was a really great opportunity to dive right in and and be involved in the Senate. And uh, that was when a lot of the Flint water crisis um, aftermath was happening. And obviously serving under uh, uh, Jim Ananick was a really great opportunity to, you know, just be right in the middle of things. And before that, you'd work for the AFL-CIO. Yeah, that was my first job out of college. It was definitely a a learning experience because I jumped right in around the time that the collective bargaining ballot Proposal was um, up for a vote. 2012. And then, uh, 
2012, yeah. Yeah, yep. And then uh, obviously the demonstrations that happened outside of the Capitol. Right. Well, okay. Uh, You've seen it all here uh, in just the last decade. (laughs) I mean, uh, how do you look right now at the kind of standoff between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Republican-controlled legislature? I mean, how do you characterize the last two years and where do you think we are now? What's going to happen next? Yeah, you know, I I think about that all the time. Um, I work with clients who are on or are from a variety of different sectors and, you know, have different public policy goals. But I really think that right now we have an opportunity for, I think, bipartisanship and cross-partisanship. And, um, you know, I've been trying to figure out what my role might be to kind of encourage that. And, um, you know, I, I, I see the standoff, but I don't think it's necessary. Um, so I, I would really hope that, you know, we can really come together this year and, and try and figure out some of the really big issues that are facing our state. Yeah, one uh, small component of all this is this uh, strange pocket veto that the governor issued early this year on a bill that would have expunged first offense driving while intoxicated cases, uh, which got huge bipartisan support in the legislature, not just the majority Republicans, the Democrats. And there was a big criminal justice reform package that Garland Gilchrist, the uh, lieutenant governor, had worked with Republicans on. And all these bills were signed by Governor Whitmer, except this one. And now Dana Nessel, the attorney general, saying, well, I actually kind of agree with the legislature on this. uh, And I want to talk to the governor about this because, you know, the legislature is probably going to reintroduce this and pass it again and send it to her. So what do you think about that? You know, I do think that this is a great opportunity for bipartisanship. I can't really uh, speak to why the governor may have uh, pocket vetoed it, but you know, I know people feel very strongly about this bill and they want to know what can be done to get it across the finish line. And I think that's a reasonable request. So, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for bipartisanship. And um, and I think that, yeah, that the request for an explanation and, and trying to figure out where to go from here, I think, is a, is a reasonable one. Another big story this week was the uh, deputy press secretary for uh, Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky deciding, I'm going to leave <laughs> the Republican caucus in the Senate, where, by the way, she had also served under Mike Bishop, Randy Richardville, and Arlen Meekoff, previous Senate Majority Leaders before Mike Shirky. And I'm going to go over and work for Dana Nessel, the Attorney General. Uh, and a lot of people were just stunned at that. But both sides, both Dana Nessel and Mike Shirky, have kind of played it down. They said, you know, she's a professional, and this isn't partisan, and, you know, let's uh, cool it a little bit. What do you think? Well, I mean, I definitely think that it's a pretty big loss for uh, Senator Shirky, but I also think that Dana Nessel, Kelly Rossman, and Amber McCann are going to be a very formidable team. Um, I am extremely excited about this development, Um, and I know that— you know, after years of working in the legislature, it probably is a welcome relief to be, you know, working in a in a less partisan and less polarizing environment. Um, so I, I'm extremely excited about this development. I hope that we can encourage more cross-partisanship. Um, and I think that, you know, even if the legislature, you know, is kind of at odds, uh, the, the people who make our government run, the staff people, 
um, you know, I think that we have an obligation to, uh, you know, walk the walk when it comes to building consensus and collaborating. So I, I think this was a great move. What about this COVID-19 supplemental appropriation bill uh, that has been passed in different forms by the House and Senate, which is very different from what Governor Gretchen Whitmer is recommending. What's going to happen on that, in your opinion? Um, I I mean, what I hope will happen is that they will release all of the federal funds. I mean, I think that the, you know, the question of whether uh, schools and, and the folks that would benefit from those funds can properly you know, spend them is just, it, it's kind of irrelevant. Like we need all hands on deck right now. Um, and holding up that funding is just, it's putting lives in, in jeopardy and putting people, you know, putting people's livelihoods uh, at risk. So I, I hope that, you know, that gets released soon. Um, other than that, I, I, uh, I don't know. I, I think that, yeah, as long as the, the federal funding is released, I think that that's the top priority. One of the things, or I should say several of the things the legislature is demanding is that the governor give up some of her power as a condition of her getting this money. I mean, I don't think anybody disagrees with anything you've just said about the necessity of releasing all the money from the federal government to fight COVID-19. But what about that? How likely is Gretchen Whitmer to voluntarily concede to the legislature that, yeah, there's some things here that, uh, you know, I shouldn't be able to do unilaterally. You should have some say in it or local school districts or local health departments or whatever. I I personally think that that's just ridiculous to ask the governor to do that. I, I wouldn't want a Democratic governor or a Republican governor to have their hands tied in a time of crisis. I mean, this is unprecedented, as everyone keeps saying. And you know, I think that the governor has been, you know, operating at the speed of a crisis and Republicans have had a hard time keeping up. And I think kind of this Monday morning quarterbacking is not productive for anyone. Um, so I just I hope that they focus on the problem at hand and just, you know, work to get solutions for the people of Michigan. How about unlock Michigan? Uh, the petitions that are in the secretary of state's office, if that gets on the ballot, in 2022, if the legislature doesn't enact it, uh, which could happen if there's majority support in the House and Senate, but if it gets on the ballot, do you think it will pass? I mean, in other words, uh, the voters would say, yeah, let's take away some of this unilateral power of the governor, or do you think they'll back the governor? I think they'll back the governor. I mean, her polling has been extremely strong, and I think as more people get vaccinated and we can kind of, and we kind of get back to uh, quote-unquote normal, I guess, um, you know, we'll see that the governor has a lot of support. I um, I also don't really see the Republicans investing a significant amount of money in uh, that ballot initiative. So if it is on the ballot and goes to voters, I'm not really sure who would be, you know, paying to advance it. One great but, development this week was uh, President Biden appearing in Kalamazoo at the Pfizer plant. That's a big plus for Michigan, isn't it? Puts us in the spotlight. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that his commitment to transportation and infrastructure funding is um, is very exciting for Michigan, too. I mean, obviously, that's a huge priority for the governor and the legislature to get our infrastructure up to a place where, um, you know, it's safe and um and just up to date. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think Biden's visit to Michigan is probably 
one of the first of many, or I guess it's the second of many, um, and I'm excited to see how that partnership continues to develop. Right. Well, listen, Elizabeth Batiste, you've given us a great overview. You're in a very exciting spot right now with Martin Waymeyer, Senior Account Executive. Elizabeth Batiste, thanks for being our guest. Thank you. We'll be back next week with still more.